Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Drabblecast, episode 223. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman. So, before we get into this week's show, if you've been listening to the Drabblecast for a while now, you may know that in addition to hosting this little podcast here, I'm also a musician, classically trained guitarist by day, writer of songs about giant mutant reptiles doing battle on the streets of Tokyo by night. I cranked out a bluegrass album back in 2007 with ten ridiculous but seemingly well-received tunes about powerful subject matter. Alien parasite infestation, milking whales for cheese, Jesus cloning and the subsequent Jurassic Park-style theme parks that would inevitably follow and then collapse, overrun by scared and rampant herds of Yesu that learn to reproduce on their own. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. You can pick up this CD, if you don't have it already, by clicking merchandise off of our new website, drabblecast.org. However, over the past couple years on the show, I've been writing songs for donors that make generous contributions to the Drabblecast, called Bartles, and I feature them on the show. Since August, I've been booking studio time, re-recording, remixing, and mastering ten of these tunes to put together in a new CD called The Esoteric Order of Sherman. Featuring amazing artwork by Drabblecast art director Bo Kyer, this project should be wrapped up in mid-December and ready to go out into your Kwanzaa stockings if I can get some help backing the project from you folks. Thus, I have started a Kickstarter project. Kickstarter, if you don't know, is a cool social networking way for people to get creative projects off the ground. You throw out some interesting gift incentives, set a deadline for your fundraising goal, and try to raise moolah from the people who want to see your project happen. As of right this minute, I've got 24 backers and a little over 1,000 bucks toward my $2,500 goal, with 30 days left to go. I think we can make this happen, folks. Basically, this is an opportunity for early birds that get a kick out of my music to get some extra cool stuff. Pledge 10 bucks and you get the full digital download of the CD when it's finished. Pledge 20 or more and you get the real deal, with a booklet full of lyrics and Bo's artwork, signed by moi. 50 or more and you get the CD and some blown up fancy looking 8x10 original cover art signed by artist Bo Kyer and myself. 100 or more and you get your name in the CD booklet. 500 or more and you get your own stinking Bartle. What a steal. Go to kickstarter.com and run a quick search for Norm Sherman to make a pledge. 
And to give you a little taste of the CD, to see what you're getting yourself into, you'll hear one of the tracks at the close of this week's show, a tune called Radioactive Runaways that I ran back on the show in April of 09, based on the classic B-movie monster battle, Gamera vs. Baragon. Hope you enjoy. All right, on to this week's stories. Let's start off with a little Drabble, shall we? This week's Drabble is called Deja Vu, and it comes to us from Ben Parker. Ben's a technical writer and biblical scholar living in New Babylon with his wife, two daughters, and son. You last heard him here on the Drabblecast with a Drabble in episode 199 called Dead or Alive, a new take on the zombie apocalypse concerning clerical, bureaucratic errors and the word undead. Enjoy. At last, Oscar exclaimed. He held it carefully, lest he break the smallest flake from the margin of the ancient papyrus. Some had searched for the philosopher's stone, others for the fountain of youth. Oscar had spent both wisdom and youth in his quest for the scroll of dreams, the enchantment that would transport one back to the time of life's greatest joy, to relive the days of youthful innocence and bliss. As he read the words of the incantation, he exulted in the moment, a moment so full of joy and oh so familiar. At last, Oscar exclaimed. Ah, to relive the days of youthful innocence and bliss. Or is that ignorance and bliss? Time flies when you're young and throwing clocks across the room like some asshole. But aging is a journey, isn't it? And with it comes experience, wisdom, and often laser hair removal. Although why you'd ever want to remove laser hair is beyond me. This week's feature story is Bearing Fruit by Nikki Alfar. Nikki learned to write at the age of two and never quite figured out how to stop. Now, over three decades later, she's been a flight attendant, a bank manager, a magazine editor, an office administrator, a radio newscaster, and currently a marketing and corporate copywriter. Along the way, she's managed to earn two Don Carlos Polanca Memorial Awards for Literature, one Manila Critics Circle National Book Award, a citation in the Global Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and recognition as a Filipino writer of note, according to the Ateneo Library of Women's Writings. She's a proud founding member of the Lit Critters Writing and Literary Discussion Group and co-edits the annual anthology series Philippine Speculative Fiction, published by multi-award novelist, short fictionist, playwright, and speculative fiction advocate Dean Francis Alfar. This story first appeared in Fantasy Magazine. The story is read to you by writer, voice actress, and podcaster Kimmy Alexander. Kimmy's been on the web since the mid-90s, producing her award-nominated podcast Tale Chasing, a show for urban fantasy readers and writers, and Guardians, a podcast novel about a bodyguard drawn into a murder mystery with supernatural elements. She's played numerous voice roles in other podcasts and has quite an extensive voiceover resume. Check her out at giftedreader.com. So, without further ado, we bring you Bearing Fruit by Nikki Alfar. This, of course, is what comes of being overly friendly with strange mangoes. One day you're a wide-eyed virgin, with nary a care in the world, 
The next, you find yourself most unexpectedly and all but inexplicably burdened in a manner that afflicts virgins only once every 2,000 years or so, to the best of your understanding. It isn't fair, but folk tales rarely are to young maidens. This is the first thing that you really ought to have known. Once upon a time, we might as well put it that way, why not? You are bathing innocently enough in the bend of the river closest to your home, when bobbing along with the current, out of apparent nowhere, comes the smoothest, ripest, most glowingly golden mango anyone has ever seen. Charmed, you try to catch hold of it, but it slyly eludes your grasp, slipping through your fingers like the very water you are immersed in, ducking and dodging and diving beneath the rippled glass surface, until you can barely make it out as a hectic vividness against the clear green of the river, the clear brown of your skin. Then it is nudging against you, tickling and taunting and teasing with its stem that very spot on your body that you yourself do not touch unless cleanliness demands it, or it must be said, unless your own urges demand it. Somehow harder, longer, and really quite a good deal more insolent than any other stem of any other mango in your admittedly limited experience. You hold still, unable or perhaps unwilling to move, speechless and trembling, and not from the cool of the waters. Soon your girl cousins are laughing, having noticed, if not precisely understood, what is going on, screamy, titillated girl giggles. And really, who can help but laugh at the sight of your boy cousins, popping up like rabbits along the riverbank, demanding to know in their manliest tones, what is happening? while still ostentatiously keeping their backs turned to the forbidden sight of your collective cousinly nudity. Yes, you are laughing too, breathless with amusement and breathless with more than that. Then the impudent mango floats up into your hands just as obligingly and ordinarily as any other fruit, although you have never actually encountered another frolicsome floating fruit before. And you tell the boys that yes, everyone is fine, no, there's nothing to worry about, maybe it was only a fish, but thank you for standing such solicitous guard. You tuck the mango between your breasts. Well, you are naked, where else is there to put it except where it's already been, and you are certainly not ready to go through that again. And hurriedly get dressed, donning underclothes, skirt, blouse wringing your hair as best as you can before piling the drenched length of it atop your head for the walk home. Only now the mango looks peculiar under your blouse, as if you had suddenly sprouted a third somewhat misshapen breast. So you wind it up in a twist of your skirt and decide to postpone its consumption until the brink of spoilage, preserving your fruit friend as a reminder of shared laughter and private pleasure. By the next morning, the mango has precipitously gone to seed, and the equally precipitous bulge of your previously flat belly makes it difficult to imagine that you are anything other than abruptly pregnant. Probably you should have known better than to take the fruit home, both literally and figuratively, which makes this the second thing you ought to have known. But then, you are sixteen years old, and rarely permitted to go anywhere unless accompanied by a gaggle of kith and ken, and no one ever talks to you about anything that means anything. 
You have naturally eavesdropped on some of your older cousins amid the usual giggling fits over whispered discussions of the sex act. But it has always seemed to involve someone's longanisha entering someone else's pugon. No one ever mentioned anything about fruit. You are certain of that. And how, then, can you be blamed for assuming that cooking was a necessary element of the process? So what is there you could reasonably have expected to know, really, except what everyone has always told you, which is that you are the loveliest girl in the village, and any man would count himself lucky to have you? You've certainly been had, you feel. No one believes your protestations that you have never been touched by the hand or the anything else of a man, despite the corroborating testimony frantically proffered by Ogging and Deeding, who are the cousins closest to you and most loyal, which, of course, makes their staunch denial all the more dubious. Good girls, everyone tells them. Good girls defending your cousin. Now tell us the truth. You can hardly blame the neighbors, really. You hardly believe it yourself, and you, after all, are in the best position to know. A single stolen kiss from the boy next door scarcely counts, although at the time you burst into tears, convinced that his tongue was the longanisha in your mouth the pugon so furtively and fervently whispered of. He managed to persuade you otherwise, and you were relieved, although apparently prematurely so, notwithstanding the fact that your present distress stems, and there's that word again, from a separate matter. Despite the general dismaying, though not unsurprising, atmosphere of disbelief, it is hard for even the most determined of pundits to gainsay the unorthodox rapidity of your gestation. And so no one argues very much, really, when you announce that you are departing on a quest to uncover the unknown father of your unborn child. Your parents, you suspect, are not so secretly relieved. In fact, even before your departure, the very same male cousins who were once tasked with safeguarding your purity have been redirected to the construction of a new shelter for the family Carabeo. The shifting valuation of commodities is not lost on you, but even you are forced to admit that everyone has a use for milk, which therefore gives worth to the carabao, whereas mangoes, it has become clear, are not to all people's taste. Accompanied, therefore, only by deeding and ogging, you set off, following the river along its meandering path upstream. Your triumvirate is armed with one sharp bolo, one stout stick, and your own sharp tongue and stout wits, which you hope will suffice, since not one of the three of you knows how to wield either of the first two anyway. Fortunately, it seems that bandits, beasts, and all other living hazards of the wild, which is not all that wild, being mostly composed of field, sparse forest, and riverbank, are leery of women impregnated by supernatural means for you are left unmolested, or at least no more so than you have already been. It is difficult to estimate, since the actual passage of time and the tumescence of your belly steadfastly refuse to coordinate. You come upon a mango tree some distance from, but within sight of the river, with a young boy several years younger than you diligently loosening the soil about its roots. You are mortified at the very notion that this spratling might be the father of your child, and are perfectly prepared to give up, turn tail, and go back the way you came, except that Ogging has already hailed the little fellow with the wave of her stick, so that there is nothing to be done except to try and discern what you came to learn. 
Is this your mango tree? You ask, critically eyeing the boy's scrawny frame and filthy fingernails. This, of course, is highly unjust and judgmental of you, given that you live among farmlands, and farming is a good and noble occupation for an honest man. So why not for an honest boy? But you are some days, weeks, months, pregnant after all, and might therefore be forgiven a modicum of irrationality. Oh no, says the boy, this tree belongs to the wealthy widow in the valley below. I tend it for her, and she lets me keep any fruit in excess of what she needs. And might you have dropped some of this excess into the river, you say, where the offending fruit might have floated downstream, severely inconveniencing, not to mention impregnating, any innocent young maidens hapless enough to have encountered it? You have been rehearsing several versions of this little speech in your mind for some time, though of course you had anticipated delivering it to someone more able to appreciate your exquisite sarcasm. What? yelps the boy, nearly severing his toes when he drops his trowel. Well, who would not be shocked after all, following an oratory like that? No, he says, shaking his head with mildly alarming vigor. No, no! Can mangoes do that? No! You decide that either he is telling the truth, or you really, really want to believe he is telling the truth, which amounts to very much the same thing, since you do not especially relish the notion of bearing a child with the inherited ability to say no four times in four sentences. You make the requisite polite murmurs, attempting to alleviate the acute embarrassment on both your parts and retreat to the riverbank for a hasty conference with your cousinly co-conspirators. You offer the option of retreat, but only ogging is interesting, foot-sore and perhaps a little heart-sick to learn that finding answers is not always a simple matter of asking questions. Deeding, for her part, insists that she is both able and more than willing to continue. You suspect that this is partially because Deeding is plainly tired of being called a liar, by implication or otherwise, all the live long day. And while you are far from persuaded that insult is a fate worse than, say, being devoured by wild animals or molested by ill-mannered produce, you can certainly empathize. So you continue onward as Ogging sets off on the return journey, taking with her your assurances to your parents and the village at large that you and Deeding remain well, along with, interestingly enough, the young boy who claims that the mango tree will keep for the time being while he sees your cousin safely home. You suspect that there is somewhat more being cultivated, so to speak, in that arrangement than either lad or young lady is currently willing to admit. And perhaps, not too long ago, you might have felt qualified to comment on other people's choices. But now you choose to keep your own counsel. With Deeding, then, you press on. The river is narrow and swift here, unlike the gentle expanse you are accustomed to at home. Somewhat daunting, but much more exciting. If you had bathed here instead of there, it occurs to you the miscreant mango might have swept on by before you even had a chance to notice it. Of course, you would never have come here if you had not bathed there, and probably there is some kind of lesson in that, but you are too preoccupied at present to pay heed to it. The next mango tree you come to, fortunately or unfortunately, they are not terribly common in these parts, 
sports a young man scaling its trunk, with a rough woven sack tethered rather cunningly across his shirtless back. Thankfully, he is very much a man and not a boy. Already you have noted that it is quite a well-developed back that you happen to be addressing, as you inquire as to the ownership of the mango tree he is presently ascending. May I inquire who is inquiring? he asks in turn, dropping agilely from the tree with seemingly fearless aplomb. More to the point, why is such a fair flower of young maidenhood wandering the wilderness on her own, asking curious questions? I am not on my own, you point out, gesturing back towards the riverbank at your waiting companion. And I'm no longer precisely maidenly, as I am sure the evidence of your eyes can tell you. And as for my curious question, I don't recall you answering it. Do you own this mango tree, sir? Maybe he says, cocking his head to examine you more thoroughly. If you count using it regularly to store my earnings, then I suppose I do own it, inasmuch as anyone does. This is unclaimed land. Earnings, you say, or thievings? You manage to catch his downward-traveling eyes with your most challenging gaze. Maybe, he says again. As for my question, I don't recall you answering it. Why are you so interested in this tree? Because the tree may have produced a fruit that floated downstream and produced a child upon an unsuspecting and hapless young maiden, you say. This is hardly the way you practiced your accusatory speech, but you find yourself distressingly flustered by his appraising smile, in the very situation where you had fully and righteously expected to be doing the flustering. Are you the person responsible? you ask, folding your arms in an attempt to regain an aura of stern dignity. Maybe, he says for the third time, still smiling that irritatingly unfazed smile. Would you like me to be? You have known the man for mere moments, but already it is clear to you that if he were the guilty party, he would either deny it glibly or crow with pride over his accomplishment not attempt to evade the issue with his apparently customary flirtatious ambiguity. Certainly not, you therefore say, and fix him with your most withering glare before turning and marching back to the riverbank to rejoin your twittering fool of a cousin whose giggling is quite spoiling your pointed departure. The man laughs, too, and the laughter follows you down the riverbank for longer even than he does. The sound of it is troublingly intimate and nearly tangible, soft as fur gliding over muscle, velvet sheathing sharp horns, something entirely animal and untamed. You are besieged by morning sickness for the rest of the journey, which is more than ordinarily irksome since you appear to be rather close to term, yet you know perfectly well that morning sickness is only expected to be a burden for the first few months. You uniquely must toil simultaneously with the weight of your belly outside and the roiling revolt of your insides, which is hardly fair, but we've discussed that. Regardless, you blame the mango, the thief, the boy, the weather, your cousins both present and absent, and the state of womanhood in general. And so it is no doubt with relief for all parties concerned that you happen upon a third mango tree with an old man harvesting fruit upon a ladder amidst the topmost leafy branches. Is this your mango tree, you demand, 
He is an extremely old man indeed, and certainly deserving of more respect. But by this point, you have decided to detest mankind impartially, so you scarcely care. It is possibly the source of a mango fruit that floated downstream and impregnated an innocent young woman, namely myself, who has been quite discomfited by the whole matter. Spirits be praised, yes, the old man exclaims, scurrying down the ladder with rather startling alacrity. At last my beloved son has found himself a bride. And so, amidst a tumult of hastily joyous introductions, as you and Deeding are whisked pell-mell through prosperous fields to an even more prosperous farmhold, you at last learn the story behind your story. Curiously, despite your initial infuriated intentions, you find yourself assuring the doting father that no, you didn't truly mind. Yes, you understand that the lad is shy. Maybe you suppose it could be construed as an indication of ingenuity to devise such a novel way to discover and woo such a lovely young maiden as yourself. Before your wits have mustered sufficient equilibrium to catch up with your traitorous tongue, you find yourself ensconced in a luxurious bedroom, bedecked in feminine frills, and obviously arranged in anticipation of your arrival. Your back is supported by a plethora of pillows, your feet have been washed, massaged, and are now propped on still more pillows, your recently filled belly is quiet, for a wonder, and there is a cup of ginger tea by your bedside and you are comfortable, for the first time in far too long to bear considering. Deeding is no longer with you. You would like to turn to her for support in recalling your aggravated agenda, but she has virtually disappeared, into the arms, you suspect, of a particularly arresting farmhand who seemed to be favoring her with a vacuous though attractive smile. You feel a vague sense of abandonment over this, but you understand that, for one of you at least, your journey has come to its desired conclusion. You wish you knew what you desired. You thought you did. You thought it would be here. You thought it would be him. The lad is sweet, exactly your age by day, month, and year, and not unhandsome, with dreamy eyes and fine fingers clearly not often turned to tilling the soil. In fact, he is obviously intelligent. In the spaces among his stammering apologies and explanations, you can plainly detect an agile mind, fully capable indeed of creating unorthodox solutions to problems such as adoring parents yearning for a grandchild from their treasured only offspring. He does not seem to quite belong, this sweet, smart, soft lad. Not in this farm, not in this countryside, not in your life. No one has actually asked if you want to get married. The asking of questions, it seems, has become your province exclusively. But clearly, it is all yours for the taking. The wealth, the healthy sheen of respectability, the proverbial happily ever after. Perversely, you find your treacherous thoughts. You cannot fail to note how consistently you continue to betray yourself circling instead about the rogue by the river, his hardened hands and appraising eyes, what he might or might not do with a woman still laden with a forthcoming child, but unencumbered at least by cousinly chaperones. You should be aware that this is folly, of course. There is no safety by the river, no stability, not even a guarantee of welcome, 
And this would be the third thing that you really ought to know. But you have managed to learn some other things over the past months. That truths do not necessarily come in threes. That value is subjective. That respectability is not the same as self-respect. And that happy endings may happen wherever you choose to find them or make them. Or do without in favor of seeing where else your story might go. our story. Hope you enjoyed. Reading this story, I was reminded of Homer's The Odyssey, about the quest and how much it teaches us about who we are and what we want. Here's one of my favorite lines from the poem. Few men can keep alive through a big surf, to crawl clotted with brine on kindly beaches. Enjoy, enjoy knowing the abyss behind and so she too rejoiced her gaze upon her husband her white arms round him pressed as though forever choose well there is nothing more admirable than when two people who see eye to eye keep house as man and wife confounding their enemies and delighting their friends that's just beautiful folks revel in the journey and choose well. And if you've made your choice already, press your arms around them as though forever. Hey, you know who I'm totally wrapping my arms around right now in a, you know, figurative, totally platonic sense? This week's kick-ass donor of the week. Seymour Knowles Barley. Originally from New Zealand, Seymour now lives in Scotland, where he's a computer programmer turned scientist, now studying for a PhD in neuroinformatics at the University of Edinburgh. He's studying the fruit fly brain and the networks of neurons, genes, and proteins that make it work. Seymour says he usually listens to the Drabblecast while dissecting and preparing fruit fly brains for imaging in a confocal microscope. So, you know, the occasional zombie story seems appropriate. Along with other labs around the world, Seymour's group hopes to understand the fruit fly brain in enough detail that they can model all 100,000 neurons in a computer. Because, of course, many human brain diseases can be studied in the fruit fly, so hopefully this research will one day contribute towards developing cures for brain diseases in humans. Awesome, Seymour. Keep it up. Seymour wanted to say hey to fellow Frisbee and Drabblecast fans Lauren and Bob and their dog Orwell. So, hey and arf, respectively. Appreciate it, Seymour. We couldn't do this show without you. It's true, folks. This here operation is a listener-supported setup, which has its ups and downs. The ups, you don't hear ads, we don't feel corporate, there's an awesome sense of community, and you feel good for giving and making a direct impact on us. The downs, well, we kind of, you know, rely on listener support, and without it we can't afford to do the show. So hey, if it's easy for you, go to drabblecast.org, look at the right side of the screen, see the donation options. You can help us out. It only takes a minute and a half. We just got a big donation, and it allowed us to buy an Arthur C. Clarke story coming up. Teaser. And that's what I'm saying. You get it back in awesome storytelling, folks. Anyways, drabblecast.org, go there, give us money. We really appreciate it. All right, enough panhandling. On to this week's 100-character story winner, Traveling Corpse Feet. And here's his ultra, ultra short story. I thought I could hold it, but when I reached the bathroom, it was too late. The baby alligator slipped 
from my hands. <laughs> nice. Bet you thought it was poop instead of an alligator, huh? And I bet you won't ever hear a bet like that on any other show you ever listen to the rest of your life, huh? Drabblecast, baby. Spread the word. It's easy, right? The show is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it with everybody you want. Write us a review on iTunes or on your blog or, hell, just tell a friend. Who wouldn't like this show? And do you really want to be friends with that jackass? I'm just playing. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, Alyssa Suzumura. Alyssa is an invertebrate biology student at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she lives with two dogs, a cat, five humans, and her adopted cockroach, B.A. Eduardo Corrochio. And when at her studies, she makes lino-cut prints and volunteers the Seattle Bug Safari in Pike Place Market. Awesome. Remember to stick around, folks. I'm about to sing you a song. But for now, I'm your host, Norm Sherman, reminding you... And I love this last line, that happy endings may happen wherever you choose to find them, or make them, or do without in favor of seeing where else your story might go. shoot laser beams. He's got a Japanese submarine in between his front teeth. Can you believe he used to be like a son to me? My, 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 they grow up so fast. Singing my, 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 they grow up so fast. I found you in a basin full of radiation, a nuclear reservoir, power plant station, a starry-eyed tenderfoot terrapin swimming in trash bins, swimming with uranium Transformation, total mutation Turtle sent by Satan to destroy every nation Yesterday I was taking you under my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Radioactive runaway Now you're knocking down cities No pity for the people of Tokyo You say it's payback time For all the sludge and slime dumped in your You get the plasma cannons hooked into your back My, 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 they grow up so fast Singing my, 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 they grow up so fast Then suddenly behind you another daikaiju Your old arch nemesis, Baragon He used to be a Joe K. Gecko back in the day But then came gamma rays and atom bombs Now he's big 
bigger than an Amtrak Glowing spikes on his back With some kind of weird-ass rainbow laser beam attack My, 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 they grow up so Yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Those radioactive runners Smoke clears away The city's smashed to hell Barragon's been slain Beside him lies your shell I pray to God above But keep my eyes on the TV screen if you weren't an abomination, you might still be here with me. This is Benchiro Kuritao reporting live from Tokyo, where it seems that the two fighting monsters, Gamora and Baragon, have in fact destroyed each other. Cheers can be heard on the streets as survivors celebrate their good fortune. It was a horrendous battle, and most of the city is demolished, but clearly the struggle is over. Waiting to incinerate the whole human race I turned off the TV with tears in my eyes Thinking about the good times and how they fly by And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast, those radioactive I saw jet propulsion rockets blast From a cavity in your ass They took you off the ground and up into the sky You never turned around you never said goodbye And it seems just like yesterday I was taking you home to my lab Guess it's true what they sometimes say They grow up too fast Those radioactive runaways Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.